Welcome to Best Adapted Podcast, the podcast about film adaptations. I'm your host, Frank. Uh, our lives are not our own, and neither is this podcast. Uh, from womb to tomb and sperm to worm, it's my co-host, Caleb Dricky. How you doing, Caleb? Uh, Caleb. Uh, Caleb is great, you know, um, in this life and, and in all others. Um, I just uh, came back from a, a, a pretty mediocre date. You know, Tom Hanks has a line in this movie, you know, he says, you know, when someone just opens a door and 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 you just know that you've shared uh experiences for for centuries and uh sort of the opposite happened is uh you know she opened the door and i realized we had uh not shared experiences for centuries <laughs> but that's okay we are here today with a special guest someone with whom i have uh many uh many experiences shared with and a great love for it's uh he's a, a reporter at at the independent and uh, my good friend uh and yours Josh Marcus how are you what's up guys thanks for having me back um yeah Caleb i would like to think that our souls have been recurring eternally in each other's lives um really in both directions in time um yeah throughout history i would say i think we've probably um uh, fucked and poisoned each other at some point. You know? <laughs> Did you say that on your date? Because <laughs> I feel like, depending on the audience, that could be received really well, or like that could end right there. <laughs> Josh, I wanted um, to apologize quickly on behalf of our social media intern who recently harassed your uh, fiance over Twitter. <laughs> she had asked for recommendations of podcasts to listen to, and some again, our intern on the social media account just. Just blasted her in the comments and mm. told her to listen to this. Wow, I know, a former guest too. It's the ones close. <laughs> I know it's former and future guest. It was really, yeah. it was, it was bad behavior. Um, I, uh, you know, I again, I, I apologize on behalf of our intern, uh, mm -hmm. Caleb. I told you we never should have hired your dad. Uh, I know that I know that Lori Lightfoot is investigating his properties and it's not going well and he's looking for another source of income, but I really did not trust him from the start. Uh-huh. Well, as long as as long as you know, as long as you guys commit to listening, learning, and doing the work, I think I think we could probably move past this. I'll do one out of three. Um but it's not gonna be the work. <laughs> This is a movie. We really will. We'll jump into the the book. Have first we said the we... name of the movie yet? No. Um, <laughs> but it is a movie that I feel I'm. It's one of those. Uh, it's like you could never make Blazing Saddles now or whatever. People say that like hack line, and you. I don't know if you could have made Cloud Atlas in 2013 when it actually came out. Yeah. Uh, this is so, yeah. one of the most baffling three-hour epics that has uh i think ever been produced in the mainstream studio system it's not sure. the mainstream studio system oh it's not it's no, it's, it's, like, oh, it's basically finance. an independent film it's distributed by warner brothers but yeah okay it's yeah and i like independent is a term that i don't totally understand because sometimes a movie is like that idea has gotten away from whatever it used to be because the spirit awards will just give it to like a24 movies now but I think essentially this is money that like Tom Tickfer and the Wachowskis assembled together and that they're all like, they are the top billing of producer on it. But I agree that it's absolutely wild. Sorry. We've like, it's called Atlas spoiler alert to all the listeners. Apologies for just careening around this thing, but fitting kaleidoscopic podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> you have to feel like you're on spice when you're talking about this book or else it doesn't 
doesn't make sense. What, um, uh, so Josh, you had kind of, you are kind of the impetuous for this episode. You actually, you, oh. you sent Caleb and I a very lovely and a very, just this very lovely email that was saying you had enjoyed the show. It was, it meant a lot to us because we knew we had at least one listener, which was you, because you were able to reference the episodes in it. But you mentioned that we should do Cloud Atlas. So like, yes. maybe like, what's your relationship to the book or the movie uh-huh. or the, or the any of yeah. it? Yeah. Um, I stand by what I said. First of all, <laughs> I will never back down. <laughs> yes, uh, keep up the great work. But Cloud Atlas. All right, I... we can cut the episode. Thank you. It's yeah. Been real <laughs> yeah. If you want to just run that at the beginning or end of every episode, you know, oh. feel free. Um, so Cloud Atlas, I learned about in college through another member of the uh, BAP Nation, uh, Henry Hytella. Um, at the time, he was reading a lot of uh, David Mitchell books, um, and we were also living together. So, you know, I was encountering all the culture he was encountering, too. Um, I had heard about the book and the movie kind of roughly the same time, maybe in high school when the movie came out. And I remember there was this one really cool kid in my high school who was reading the book. And so I always assumed it was like a cool book. And so it's like that was in the that was like a just a little nugget in my past. And then Hank was reading it. So I was like, okay, let me give this thing a try. It speaks pretty highly of David Mitchell. Um, and I read it and I have to say it is probably among my favorite novels ever. Right on. I think it is just like, I have a real fondness for books that feel like not only are they just really well done, but they just kind of explode for me what I think is possible in a book. Like I always really admire <laughs> formal experimentation and just kind of ambition and audacity that's realized because I think there's a lot of like foolish self-regard among writers who like think they're geniuses doing something interesting and cool but the people who actually are it's kind of this amazing thing to watch like a phrase I thought of when I was thinking about this book is one I think I heard you guys say on this podcast when you call it kind of like a magic trick when a filmmaker just does that like really special inspired thing and so I love books that feel like the whole book's a magic trick Mm -hmm. and so to me I I honestly I consider it like an achievement on the level of like a grapes of wrath or you know just a really epic wonderful book Um, and I think it's another thing I appreciate about it as a writer and just as a reader too is just it's it's both like very it's like asking serious questions about like morality and cultural exchange and capitalism, all sorts of fun stuff like that. But it's also just great fun to read. Like I, I think that's a pretty hard balance to pull off is to make something like serious and seriously entertaining. Um, But I think Mitchell totally does this. Um, And since then I've read Slade House, which is kind of like a cloud atlasy ghost story about a house that like moves through time and people getting trapped into it. Um, and I'm working on Bone Clocks, which is another one of his books and which is kind of like, we might get into this more as we talk about his work, but his books are all loosely connected in the same kind of broader universe in the world. He calls it like his Uber novel. And there are these little echoes yeah. of like one family will appear and then you'll meet the person, the like fifth generation after that person in a next book in a totally different time or, you know, the same cat walks through different books. Like he just kind of plays little tricks like that. And so working on Bone Clocks, which is like the one where some of those connections are really elucidated. Um, so yeah, I really like his work. Um, I think he's, I think he's like at the top of his game 
um, among modern writers. And I find it very inspiring. And I just think about it a lot. Like it's, I just think about individual scenes, about the ideas behind it. Um, I found it all very moving. So I, that's why I really wanted to talk about it with you guys, Um, especially because I thought then once I read the book and I was like, how the fuck did they make a movie out of this? Sure, It's interesting that you, you brought up sort of that, that dichotomy in, in, in the book of sort of extreme formal experimentation and then also a, an unabashed commercialness. I mean, I think we're going to talk about pastiche later, but Mitchell is drawing often directly from uh, genre fiction, um, from like from crime fiction and from sort of like YA post-apocalyptic stuff. Melville. Um, <laughs> from Melville. Yeah, um, the most commercial of all. Um, but I think that is that connects very closely to two of the directors that we're going to be talking about today, which are the Wachowskis, who were, of course, coming up in the late 90s where these visionary action blockbustery uh, uh, action directors who kind of changed the way that special effects were were used in Hollywood and were sort of um, on the forefront of, of experimentation in that way, but also, st- I think for most of their careers, stayed rooted in sort of the commercial Hollywood system, I think, if effectively until this film in, in 2013. So sure. what is your relationship with the Wachowskis? Do you have a, a, a similar fondness for them and their work? Or is that sort of, or, or, or is that affection sort of rooted to, to Mitchell specifically? I would say it's not as deep. Like Mitchell is someone who you know, for example, I I studied creative writing in college, haven't really done much of fiction writing since, but just recently I was thinking of, oh, you know, maybe I'll mess around and like start a novel project. And I immediately was just like, what's like the best novel? What's a novel I love? Let me think about David Mitchell. So like, that's like, I'm thinking about him on that level where I'm like, he's influencing like my life choices. Oh, yeah. That is not yeah, how yeah. I think about the Wachowskis. I saw The Matrix as a teenager. I thought it was very cool. Um, I didn't quite receive how cool it was until recently I went back and watched all them in advance of the um of the reboot um Mm -hmm. while I was recovering from the COVID booster shot so I was down and out so I was like I might as well just (laughs) hell yeah have a true like you know kids stuck at home movie marathon um and yeah I really I really admire especially the 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 earlier you get in the Matrix series the more I like them Um, okay uh so I really appreciated those movies I liked I liked how, again, just kind of sexy, fun, entertaining they are, but while still trying to make you think about something. Um, I don't think they pull off the, like, you know, serious good time and serious serious questions thing quite as gracefully. I think sometimes it can be, like, excessively obvious or just, like, just not handled elegantly, I guess. For sure. Um, but that's pretty much just how I feel about the Matrix movies. I haven't seen... Bukowski's other work though I did I realized I was a big fan of V for Vendetta as a as a teenager and they wrote the screenplay for that yeah yeah, they produced it well and that's how they actually found out about this novel is Natalie Portman was reading Cloud Atlas on the set of V for Vendetta and they approached and this like basically Natalie Portman recommended it to the Wachowski siblings and then 
a few years later, here we are with Cloud Atlas. Who's the yeah. guy? Who's the guy who wrote that book? Um, everything is. Oh, Jonathan Safran Foer is weeping right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know that dude is. He wishes that Natalie was reading his book on set. Um, though interestingly, Tom Hanks was in an adaptation of that dude's other book too. So you know, I guess he got he got something out of it. Anyway, I really like. Yeah, we read that. It was cool. It felt like in a similar mode to the Matrix of just kind of like cool, sexy, slightly thought provoking. Like yeah, I think, Rage Against I, the Machine era pop culture. <laughs> I, I do think that Wachowskis are like their ideas almost only succeed if they are really at the helm for like every inch of it. And sort of like the the third player in this movie is Tom Tickford. Like we should maybe get into him for a second. But like the the screenplays the Wachowskis have written that they don't direct, I think, are kind of bad films. I mean, the the. So their sort of first big gig is Assassins, which is if you've ever seen the Antonio Banderas meme where he's typing at the computer and then he's like, <laughs> yeah, that's basically that's the, the only thing I've seen of that movie. That is no, that's the only thing most people have seen of that movie. It's like the it's the greatest contribution of that movie to the to anything. But so that becomes just like dumb, like pulpy action in someone else's hands. And I don't know. I have not seen that film. I should not assume that the script is like any wise gems in it. But Viva Vendetta even is kind of. I like that movie and we should probably do an Alan Moore series at some point, Caleb, but that's a kind of a dumb film. And yeah, you know, yeah. Like, I mean, I like, it's definitely like cool if you're a teen guy. Oh, for sure. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <got> knives. Yeah. <laughs> Ideas are bulletproof. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What? A, yeah. And he throws the knives. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fuck. That movie is cool. Okay. So anyway, like, I think what is special about them and when they're doing it well is this ability to make the ideas exist in a very didactic literary way, but also to be kind of embedded into like this, like the style or kind of visual patterns of the film. I mean, I, I do think the Matrix movies have for the most part aged really well. And partly it's just because we don't get blockbuster entertainment that is as like singularly weird and, and aesthetically honed as they are. But like, I like the the first Matrix movie continues to make me optimistic even in the year like 2022 or whatever. Totally. Caleb, do you have a relationship with David Mitchell? Have we moved past Wachowski's before you wanted to or uh No, I, I was curious about your relationship to this book. I I I think I I I, sim- I similarly received a recommendation to read this book from Hank Hitala, the great the great Hank. Um and I I like this novel a lot. I think I like it more structurally and and formally than I do philosophically. I think it's sort of um I think it I am not a particularly spiritual person. That's sort of that um I it, sh- it should be said I think both this book and sort of the Wachowskis generally are sort of about sort of these grand concepts of like universal goodness and uh karmic retribution and and um i think is is influenced deeply by by eastern philosophy in a way that i don't necessarily connect with i think this is kind of i do like this book a lot and i like it mostly because of the way that it is about these grand philosophical things that i don't really connect with but it is also sort of kind of a primer and a history of western literature it from from like 18th century epistolary novels to like 
1970s crime fiction and sort of, I think, formally the way that he is able to blend and subvert his own voice to match the voices of sort of essentially pop, whatever the pop literature of the time that he is writing about in is really fascinating. And then also the way that it sort of connects to this overarching theme of this novel and sort of the way that uh, literature and art generally is um, functions as, as an empathy machine to like connect people across time and ages. I think is, I think it is, well, I don't always connect with his work generally, I think in this novel sort of form and, um, form and intention and, and, uh, it clicks for me. I don't know. I think I really, really like this novel in a way that I don't necessarily feel for, for, I find the rest of his work maybe a little bit obtuse. The, the, you're, you're just your quote on as empathy machines. I, in an interview with David Mitchell, he described, he was talking about movies, but I do think maybe this can be applied to art too. He called them Trojan horses. And the idea that like a movie kind of transports you and takes you away and entertains you, but plants things into your brain, <laughs> uh, which is, I don't know. I, I love that propagandistic quality of movie. Like that's what makes them good to me. It's, it's because you have to like lose yourself in them to have, like a spiritual experience with a movie like you have to let it kind of brainwash you a little bit it's kind of funny that um <clears throat> see I, I like hear what you guys are both saying about like the movies and the empathy machine and, and stories but i think frankly this is kind of an extremely pessimistic book <laughs> yeah <laughs> really know, um yeah yes. like oh, deep, in a deep way like in a like art doesn't fucking matter <laughs> kind of way okay well should we like also i think I guess a question Wait. for you guys: Should we like explain the structure and the plot? Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh -huh. So it's um, the book is is split into into six sections, or really twelve sections. There are six narratives that sort of are each are given two chapters, and then over the course of the novel, it is revealed that these storylines, which take over six different lives and six different timelines are all intersecting in some way, often through the art that is being consumed, that, that is being read or listened to or consumed in some way. So one of these sections is the diary of an American lawyer as he is on a boat from New Zealand to California, as he is being slowly poisoned by parties unknown. The second is an English composer who is reading that diary as he is um, working on his own magnum opus and and dealing with issues of um, called Cloud Atlas, no less called Cloud Atlas. Yes, Cloud the Atlas Cloud Atlas. Sextet. Absolutely, as he is exploring his own sexuality and and sort of the confines of 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 nineteen thirties Europe, and then we jump to San Francisco in the nineteen seventies, um, which is sort of a kind of airport thriller e totally story about a sort of a plucky reporter who is investigating a conspiracy to replace the oil industry with with a nuclear power plant. Oh, and then there's a, um, a bit of a, a farcical comedy about an old man locked in a nursing home against his will. Um, and then we jump to the future and sort of a 90s, very Gen X sci-fi corporate dystopia in Neosol. And then finally, the last section is kind of this YA post-apocalyptic, a, a young man facing down doubt in the post-apocalypse. 
And it should be said, each of these stories you get about the first half of them and they kind of cut off at a climactic moment. And then you move to the next one forward in time, next one forward in time until you reach this middle slice where you get the whole story, which is the one, the post-apocalyptic one. It's like on the, the big island of Hawaii, like after the fall of humanity, more or yeah. less, with like tiny pockets of advanced civilization left. And then the story goes backwards and then you get the second half of all those stories. So it feels like something I appreciate about the book very much is it feels like this very kind of graceful arc of like all of human society as he imagines it, like rising and then falling in the middle and then kind of tying up like how that was in the back half of the book. It's the tango, right? Like six steps forward, six steps back. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, it felt to me like to just use another movie. It felt like there's that moment or there are various parts in that movie Inception where you're like seeing mm. different timelines play out at different speeds. And then at a certain point, they all, you know, they're trying to cut off the like dream state that they're in. And then they all kind of end in this like almost like bowling ball timber, like one domino after the other feeling. Yeah, And I get that feeling by the structure of this book. It's like this very graceful, like rise, fall, conclusion but through like hundreds of years, which I think is pretty, that's to me is the magic trick. It's like, he told the story of like all of society in his version of it. Sure. And it's also an interesting, well, one, one of the things I find interesting about this book, especially the elements of it that are historical fiction is the way that it intentionally puts itself at the margins of events. Like it isn't because I mean, so this like this sort of Moby Dick influence part, like that is sort of a like a uh, narrative about that has to do with like colonization and the slave trade. But it's the Polynesians to California. It's a trans-Pacific narrative as opposed to like a transatlantic narrative, which is a lot more of an established tradition moving into like Frobisher, the composer. That's a, that's between World War One and two. So it, again, it sits at this point of there have been great novels written on either side of that, you know, but it's not even about like the Roaring Twenties or in the same space as The Great Gatsby or something like that. And then the 70s airport novel, like that's a very, those the conventions of that form and genre make sense to me, but the 70s is not, I think of as like a particularly iconic part of literary history of like, I can't, I personally cannot name like books that I was taught in high school that would take place in the 70s, you know? Sure, or like in our minds, the counterculture was more of a, or like, the counterculture yeah, yeah. of the 60s is much more iconic than the kind yeah, yeah. of crazier years of the 70s where it kind of went off the rails a lot sure. harder. Which is a super interesting period, to, like very fruitful ground to be to be writing about, I think. Yeah, so I, I think that is interesting. And I want to double back to what you said, Josh, about this being a very pessimistic novel. But I think this novel is very much about sort of, it is not about the apocalypse or about sort of the climactic events that brings upon the end of days we see before sort of the final collapse and we see after the final collapse, but we don't see the collapse itself. And I think what this novel is really more about is sort of institutional rot and decay and, and sort of the overarching, the overarching narrative of all of these stories are stories of people fighting and mostly losing against sort of these these structures of of institutional oppression and sort of i think this is sort of a pessimistic novel but it is not necessarily hopeless but often yeah. this this novel is about finding meaning not through stopping the bad guys 
or stopping the, you know, the great collapse because those structures are too big, but instead finding meaning and purpose through personal connection. And often it's, it is art that connects people. So it's yeah. a little navel gazy in that way, but like, sure. I think also like genuinely sweet and sincere and moving and melancholy instead of cynical, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. It's like, yeah, as you're saying, it's like people are fairly powerless to affect world events, but they can, they, they can and often do seek out stories from the past and incorporate them into the present, which then influence the stories of the future. Yeah, it's like an argument for like the primacy of stories, no matter what, um, yeah. which, yeah, which you would expect the writer to feel that way. Otherwise, why bother yeah. uh, writing a book, for example? Um, but yeah, the, the, and I think an important point to mention about the book, um, which will, I think, at least for me, really colored how I saw the film is not only is it about just, you know, these different time periods and these different structures and these different conflicts that are happening, but it's also about how language represents those things. Um, the, the voice shifts considerably each time. Um, and there's this interesting sort of like almost degradation that happens as as the novel moves forward in time. So it starts in this very kind of ornate kind of, you know, upper crust sort of English that you would imagine a well-to-do lawyer writing in. Um, and then the prose gets sort of shabby by the time you get to the seventies, it's a little more airport thrillery. And then when you get to the Neo soul, like the, um, you know, like dystopian kind of Korea state, the language has become kind of broken down and all these nouns get replaced by corporate words. So a car is just called a Ford, uh, you know, a music player is just called a Sony. Movies at Disney. Yeah, it's like, it just is kind of this like strange and slightly uncanny dialect of English that's been corporatized because the world around it has been taken over by kind of evil corporations. And then when you get to the post-apocalypse world, it's this very interesting, and I think probably the most ambitious section from a technical level it's like yeah. it sounds almost like um like a pigeon language or like mm -hmm. a sort of i can't think of a way to describe this in a politically correct way exactly it's, or i just it's, I it's pigeon it's pigeon like that's what that's that's what this i mean then which is and it's brilliant of him i think to set it on hawaii which has such a rich history of uh as this sort of like uh, not melting pot, but like mixing point of a lot of different cultures across the Pacific. Like it's pigeon. Yeah, it is, totally. It it's, but not term. only is it pigeon, but it's sort of like, because, you know, it's like languages like Creole or sure. like Patois stuff, you know, have their own, you know, they're a mix of different languages, but they have their own very set rules and grammatical structures and things. But this feels more purely like kind of like a pure vernacular with almost like no rules, lots of apostrophes, lots of slang, lots of just words that are like, you start to catch on to them and their meaning. So like yibber is gossip or grinds or what they call food. They're all these just little kind of like slangy substitutions. So you just yeah. get the sense that like high arts and culture have changed into something much more diffuse and different. So anyway, it's just kind of like, I think to me the the central concern of the book is like the rise and fall of civilization and how people respond to that. And one of the ways they do that is like language changes a lot. Um, and, and it adds a lot of meaning, I think, to the book, like when you start to feel like you feel the whole of culture shifting in this world in a kind of deep way, which I think is an impressive thing to make someone feel. Yeah, I, 
I I appreciate you saying that because I, re- I read the book basically for this pod. I'd seen so I'd seen the movie before I read the book and then I've watched the movie since reading it. That is a really good point, Josh. I have that 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 is you're watching kind of language bend and break as this way of understanding the world, which is why it gets so refreshing to work your way back through the layers and end with Ewing. I think. Yeah, totally. I think there's. I think also just. It, it, it is also very much about sort of the way the form in which stories are are shared because it, it starts with a diary and then it shifts to letters and um and then uh novels and then film and then i can't remember what the last one but the last is oral story or oral storytelling so it is also and like a like a prison testimony yeah, interrogation yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so it, it it also is i think very much about sort of well, I think this is a novel about literature, like specifically about like the art of literature. I think it's also very much about uh, both the, the way that language shifts, but also the sort of the forms and the structures through which stories and language are are shared and, and transmitted. So yeah, I think it's, I mean, this is a very ambitious and very uh, exciting novel. I think it's fair to say. Yeah. And like, I would say intellectually omnivorous is how I describe it. Like it just fucking goes for it i think in a way that i appreciate sure yeah yeah it, it, it's sort of but it is like it is popular it is re- it is readable it's not it is not on its surface a super cerebral book i would say no it's not like joyce or something where like, yeah you have to like dive into it and try very hard to get it all like it's very good, I think, especially when it's imitating the historical fiction elements of it. Like it's really good at kind of sanding off some of the edges of, like you're reading it and you do feel like it is of a piece with what you imagine a journal from the 1800s would be, but it is not incomprehensible in the way that like Moby Dick like kind of is when your high school teacher like throws a chapter of it at you or something. Yeah. No, it's like it's a it's a tricky balancing act and he pulls it off well. In the interviews that I've been seeing with Mitchell that I've been looking at kind of for this pod and for influence, he is a he's not like a super aloof dude, I guess. Like he seems like pretty kind and like open heart, op- like just like very transparent about his writing of this book and of willing to say like these are my different structures of storytelling, these are the genres I'm like pulling from when I do it, you know? Like and I, Josh, you mentioned you looked at some profiles. Like, is this kind of in keeping? Like, he seems like a yeah. He seems like a, a nice guy. It's like, a surprisingly like dense book to come out of him. I guess does that make sense? Yeah, I get the sense. Well, so a little about his background. So he was kind of like just grew up in like kind of small town England. His parents were commercial artists, but not you know like a member of the cultural elite by any stretch. He like went to university, but didn't grow up rich. Or like, you know, it wasn't Cambridge, it was some other, or Oxford, it was some other English university. And then he was an English teacher in Japan for a while. He backpacked around East Asia. So he's kind of, I get this, he's like very keen on world travel and cultural exchange. And I think he just kind of has like that sort of friendly disposition of someone who travels a lot and is open and willing to kind of talk about things and is interested in culture and a kind of he he's like he strikes me as like kind of like has a student like persona where he's just sort of open and seems like fairly humble and I guess apparently 
I mean, obviously they would say this in a magazine profile about someone who's like now considered a leading light, but his teachers were like, oh, you know, he didn't even think he was that smart, but he was a genius. You know? <laughs> but of course, like, it's easy to say that like once your student has gone on to like, you know, be one of the great selling awarded novelists of the time. Um, so, you know, who knows also that, you know, there's a lot of spin in celebrity profiles, but seems like a nice guy. He seems like he's kind of always inviting journalists to like hang out with him in rural Ireland where he lives. The, when, when my teachers are interviewed about me, they'll be like, we would have never imagined he was capable of that kind of violence. <laughs> <laughs> we should have spotted the signs. <laughs> we should have seen the signs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought you were about to say something nice and then it was something. Absolutely not. I, like, I, <laughs> I guess, yeah, I was like, I guess it just shows, you know, I gotta get to know you more. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Seems like a good enough guy. Um, and not a prick though, you know, famous pricks often seem that way before they're out of that way so who knows yeah we'll see we'll see maybe he gets canceled in between now and then wishing him the best in this in this cheated oh, <laughs> Scott oh well i'm just thinking i'm just thinking the idea of wishing someone the best but the best being hoping they don't get canceled well that they've done nothing cancelable i guess that's how it's actually supposed to hope they get away with it if they just oh god We'll cut that. That's really bad. That's worse than implying I was going to like be a mass shooter or something. That's even. Frank, I hope they get away with it, Meyer. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how that sounds. Game recognized game, okay? Just like. And, and yeah, the, I have some talk about. Let's talk about Dochowski's and Tick for and for a bit of yeah, yeah, like. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I had read this book basically in between watches of the movies. I got really into trying to catch up with the Wachowski's filmography in 2019. And yeah, basically just tried to work through as many of their movies as they, as I could and ended up watching this and was really pretty taken with it. I'm, I'm definitely, I think a bigger fan of this movie. I know than Caleb, Josh, I'll be very curious on hearing some of your thoughts on it. Like when we're in it more, um, to me, what I am really impressed with about the Wachowskis, and it comes across so strongly in the Matrix films, is their ability to be very critical while also being, while also refusing to surrender to cynicism. Like, especially the first Matrix is really like the, you know, and it's why like fucking Zizek and Cornell West and like all these thinkers have like chewed in on this movie and found like a lot to pull from it as allegory. But, like, that is a movie that basically believes the world is, like, so fucked that it isn't even a real place. And it's just completely, like, overrun by ideology and dishonesty. And still, like, believes in the capacity of the human spirit to, like, transcend it. Which is just foundational to their work, I guess. Like, these are all films about people transcending in some way. It's, it's not exactly spiritual, but it is, it's transcendental for sure. But obviously that term is very loaded in like the context of filmmaking because there is transcendental filmmaking, which is kind of slow and stately and really about kind of pulling purity from kind of the mundane features of life in the camera. And that's like super not the Wachowski style. They're these like deep visual innovators. A part of what's so fascinating about them is their, their ambitions can kind of only work if they have a hundred million dollars or more behind what they're trying to do. Like they just, they really do, they, they're incredibly ambitious movie makers. Caleb, like, you don't love them, I I know, is kind of your thing. You've, you've made jokes about that it's a... There's been this kind of reclaiming or kind of re-reckoning with some of their work, especially with Resurrections coming out, and you're kind of the... 
I don't know what like you're 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 standing against the tidal wave of ti- of of Wachowski's revision. Standing so. athwart history, yelling stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's I, my boy I mean, Caleb. I should say, like, the Matrix is undeniable, and I think after that, that skepticism, when when especially because it is paired so closely with the studio, the Hollywood studio system, and with capital. Um, I, I find their films hollow. I believe they are very nice people and I believe that they believe sincerely um, in the messages that, uh, you know, that, that are imparted by their films. It is difficult for me to take a, a film that says it's important to be yourself and to reject the corrosive uh, influence of capital when it is that message is being delivered by a beautiful movie star in a $280 million action film that is based on a pre-existing piece of intellectual property. Yeah, are you talking about Resurrections? Speed Racer, I find kind of a hollow film. Um, and I think just generally the Matrix franchise after that that first one, I, I find is diminishing returns. Look, I, I respect them as sort of as makers of spectacle. And I respect the sincerity of their work, the overtness with with which they deliver their message of the importance of kindness and love. I believe that they believe it, but it strikes me as fundamentally hollow and frankly, some goo-goo gaga baby shit. Do you think you would like them more, Caleb? And this is sort of a weird thought experiment to try to pose, but if they basically were less idealistic and more just committed to making just like propulsive blockbuster films without this sort of like sort of this admittedly very treacly kind of kindness element that they always put at the end. Like if they were just sort of doing what is now the Marvel stuff, like if they made a Fast and Furious movie or something like that, do you think you might just enjoy them more if they just played their skill, played to their skills? Yes, but I, I think also that that their refusal to do that is what makes them for better or worse distinctive filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, they do, to their credit, refuse to fully buy into that system and and that sort of um, defacing of corporate art. It's just their their vision. I just I find um, I find distasteful. But that is my uh, but it, but it's distasteful to me. And I and while I don't understand the reclamation project, I don't understand why people like sort of the treacly messaging of those films, I do respect at least that they are given the leeway to do it. I wish there were more, frankly, mediocre writers who were making distinct, if mediocre, pieces of art, if that makes sense. Okay, like, uh, because the Wachowski's vision is, it is, it is, uh, it is so ambitious that when they do get to make a film, it is assembled kind of so many resources it kind of sucks the air out of the room for other types of voices, kind of. Like, they get to be, they're kind of the one weirdo who takes $100 million and everyone else has very little to work with. I don't want to put sort of the, the constriction of of uh, of studio filmmaking on, on their backs. Like, that yeah, is, yeah. It's, it's, it's not their responsibility. I, but I, I, I think I do feel a little bit resentful that they are the last ones who get to make... Um, who get to make those kinds of sincere and frankly weird films when I find those films to be considerably less interesting than their predecessors who who have, for the most part, been run out of Hollywood. 
look the look the first matrix film is like an it is a really striking depiction of how capitalism has not only sucked away the the like material essence of humanity and this notion of people as commodities and as to be like repurposed and consumed by other humans as commodities but it is also how it has basically closed off imagination you know which is like I mean, this is Mark Fisher's point about that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And The Matrix is a film that has the boldness to say, like, to talk about, to at least conceptualize in an allegorical format what it is to basically cut your way out of capitalism and conceptualize a world after that. Uh, these are films that are, like, invested. and then And then the second one being this whole question of how much are we indebted to the hero narrative as a way to exit capitalism and as a way of like basically how like revolutionary consciousness stems out of these like narratives of prophecy and heroism and how much those narratives are themselves like come from the same place of power that capitalism itself is like pulling from. Um, I think they've gotten clumsier with that message in a movie like Jupiter Ascending, which is very on the nose about like capitalism is bad. And it's like, you have made this point already. Yeah, I don't know. Like, they're really exciting. I I walk out of their films and, like, especially with, like, uh, Resurrections, which has these very metatextual references to the very task of making a fourth Matrix film after the the Wachowskis have basically been locked out of Hollywood unless they do that. Um, those are movies I walk out of and I am, like, blinking and, like, squinting at the world around me because it doesn't make sense after what they've kind of peeled away. I mean... I know that the red pill movement is like a misreading of the matrix, but I still think it basically speaks to the potency of that movie and communicating with people. And I don't know, like, I think that there is a, there is certainly a place for pairing spectacle with ideas in the history of filmmaking. I mean, this is why the Nazis are like banning Sergei Eisenstein's movies from getting access to Germany. Cause they're like, if people are see what the Soviet cinema project is putting together, because at that, because like the Soviets are literally inventing the idea of montage, and they're like, this will like fucking brainwash people. Like that's that's the Trojan horse idea again. Like I I don't know. Like I I think there's totally a place for like spectacle and this kind of philosophical reading. And like better people than me have written on it. You know, like Zizek writes about the, them. Cornell West has a cameo, I think, in at least one of the Matrix films. Yes, he's on like the city council of yeah, the last, it's just uh, awesome. <laughs> last like human settlement. And then, like, I think my only final note on the Matrix is what is very exciting about them is that those are films that are also about challenging the idea of like what humanity can be in a way that speaks to the present as this hyper mediated way of interacting with each other, where like. Caleb, these like podcast episodes and these conversations are like, they speak, these are like the highlights of my week. And they're also like a time where I feel the most myself. And at the same time, I'm like looking at a computer screen and in this like hyper mediated, like disassociation with people. And the Matrix movies have found a way to kind of thread the needle of talking about how that is itself like a form and like a retelling or re-understanding of humanity, you know? I think part of the problem with Cloud Atlas and why I think it's ultimately like a second tier Wachowski movie is that they have to embrace a new form of kind of fantasy and fiction that just doesn't quite match the like Cloud Atlas almost isn't ambitious enough for like what they're trying to get across about 
picking up on where humanity is going and and the idea of what it means to be human. Both of you guys are like, yeah, no, for sure, I agree. And then you guys are saying different <laughs> things and I agree with both of you. So, uh, you know, hopefully the audience feels the same way. I see, I would take issue with what you said, Frank, that I think Cloud Atlas isn't an ambitious enough set okay. of questions. I think it's just a more of a different, it's like it's a, a different context. And I think yeah. the main difference being it's it's like not a movie or Cloud Atlas as a story is not particularly interested in technology or in in media in the modern sense like it's interested in the transmuting of stories but not in like you know cameras and the internet and yeah. virtual reality and stuff which i think is way more in the wachowski wheelhouse um, no i think it's like literally a different ideology than they have which yeah is, or like a different philosophical system so like that's uh-huh. why they're kind of a little bit at odds which yes. i will totally I like this movie. I really like a lot of the choices it makes. It is at odds with like, I think more of it. Yeah. yeah I would add one last thing about their filmmaking. Cause I've also been, while I went back and did my like rewatch of all the matrix movies, I've also been working my way through all the Marvel movies um, mm, just out of yeah. curiosity. Cause they're such an important cultural object at the moment. Um, and they're also just kind of hilarious unintentionally a lot of the time. And so I think if I had to break it down into like a very simple taxonomy i would say the marvel movies are pure spectacle and they attach little sprinkles of ideology in to like make it seem like they're saying something but they're really not saying anything other than that like power is important and are kind of maybe a vaguely like (laughs) american like hegemony is actually good because there are good people who exercise it kind of thing so to me that that's kind of the message of all marvel movies is like are superheroes good yes and then the Wachowskis are also similarly trying to achieve a similar like height of spectacle and entertainment and like thrill, but while also being very skeptical of power on the surface. And I would agree with you, Caleb, in the sense that you can only be so skeptical of power while also, you know, being in bed with Warner Brothers. Like, and, and as much as I thought, you know, at the very least, like, it was a worthwhile choice in Matrix Resurrections to have the whole section where they're like doing the meta commentary on like, what does the Matrix mean? And like, what does it mean to be a reboot? Like, it struck me as a little having your cake and eating it too. Sure. Where it's just like, just because you nod that you are complicit in a system doesn't actually free you from it. And I actually think that movie was, I didn't really like it at all. And I think it felt like a Marvel movie to me. Like, it felt like it got swallowed by mediocrity and just sort of like it didn't have a reason to exist other than its own perpetuation, which to me is like all Marvel movies kind of just feel like they're just setting you up for the next Marvel movie. Josh, do you know who one of the writers was on Matrix? I do. <laughs> I know. And I was, I was our boy, Dave Whistle, and I was really excited. I was like, cool. Like, yeah, he is a great addition to the team. He like will hopefully do something thoughtful with this um and i get the sense like the the scenes where in the fourth matrix where they're sitting around essentially in a writer's room talking about what a matrix movie ought to mean that feels very michellian to me um Mm -hmm. but i just don't think it's a good movie to me it felt like watching a wikipedia article where they were explaining the matrix to me and then it was over and i was and then and i also felt like a bit of that saccharin either the Wachowski or maybe a little bit of the Mitchell touch where it was like, love is the most powerful force of all. And like (laughs) Neo's love for Trinity was so strong. It powered the whole matrix. 
I know. I, I feel guess, like we're getting a little on a tangent here, but anyway, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like you can I, only say so much when at the end of the day, you're trying to make broad popular entertainment. And I think the Wachowskis do it better than most, but like they are not immune to the, the calls of trying to thrill people with violence and like hero stuff. They, they just, they feel like a CIA psyop. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, one of the things I've heard and Josh, you're a journalist, you should really, I, I should really watch my words before I'm with someone who can fact check it. I, apparently the CIA did distribute copies of the Matrix in like Libya around like the time of their their spring. <laughs> oh my god! Because that's it is hilarious. Like this potent object. Yeah, I, I I mean whether that's true or not, I think that would be not a terrible tactical choice because I think that movie <laughs> offers more of a question than an answer to anything. It's just sort of like, what if the system as it exists isn't the only way it could exist? Mm. And you've been fed illusions, and like anyone can latch onto that message who feels like they're in a kind of minority position. Um, I would would just add about the Wachowskis. Like I had a a writing teacher once who said to like, it's a sign that a book is probably not going to be good once the name of the author is bigger than the title of the book on the front of it. So like one, that's why a lot of airport books are like that, where it's like Dave Baldacci and like huge letters (laughs) like presents whatever. child. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like the, after the matrix, the Wachowskis, became started to become in that category and i think frankly it's very hard to make good art once you are in that because people are people want you to be what you have been and the audience wants you to be a certain way and then you're just kind of like you're already sort of boxed in can we do a brief side note on if the CIA tasked you with dropping a movie in a foreign country for the purposes of like creating revolution what might you select? I'm going to say um, Major League. <laughs> I think comedy is the way. I was going to do uh-huh. like Monty Python, like just seasons of Monty Python or something. Like just just like anarch- like just pure anarchic energy and just see if it takes it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Comedians are uh, the, the truth tellers who take you through a spooky haunted house <laughs> of the mind. Isn't that right? <laughs> I'm always saying this. Um, I would want that to be a movie that doesn't exist, which is an adaptation of the novel The Sellout. Have you guys ever read that one? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, God. yeah it's so like a crazy great. racial farce set in LA and like, it's fucking awesome. Um, I would want people to be laughing their asses off in America. I think that would be a good start. Or honestly, maybe Team America World, please. <laughs> <laughs> I stand by that movie. I think it's it's like the only good thing that Trey Parker and Matt Stone have done other than maybe Book of Mormon. But even that, wow. you know, it's like right on the edge. <laughs> I think the cell might be worth adapting. I think there's enough. Uh... Good luck securing financing. <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh, my God. You would need like someone you would need. I feel like, frankly, maybe only Oprah could do it. Yes. Oprah or or like Ava DuVernay. I'm thinking of someone that someone that needs to have like essentially unlimited resources yes. and cultural credibility and a proven financial track record and kind of cultural unimpeachability. An ability to pay everything like in advance to make them. Or honestly, fucking Tyler Perry could probably do it, but he would never because he he like has his own parallel studio universe. Totally. No. What is yeah. his? Uh, yeah. God. That is an interesting idea. And I think you're right that he never would touch it, but yeah. No, because he's like, what if, yeah. That's a whole other episode on what Tyler Perry has to say about the world, but 
yeah, not that radical. I did see him live in Brooklyn for an essay that I never wrote. Um, but that's that's a real that's more of an off pod conversation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what ends up coming on screen in this movie, the biggest departure from the source text is its decision to intermingle all the stories on top of one another and to eventually and to essentially just like cross cut. It has this really this really fucking fast and smooth opening 40 minutes that is just chronological of moving through the story. Like I paused when it was done and like, I think this movie is like immaculately paced. Like it just, it is like three hours long, but it just fucking flies for the most part. And partly because, Oh, Caleb, big eye roll from you. (laughs) Continue. I think this first 40 minutes like moves absolutely so quickly. Like it is just like this, like soaring, like kind of building tension through these different characters there is like a lot of voiceover through this film. And I do think Mitchell's kind of dialogue and platitudes in the writing lends itself quite well to voiceover and to having like a gravelly Tom Hanks or like another figure just kind of deliver it to you through the screen of just laying out all these four stories. And then what follows is this total, um, it is, it is these like really immaculate match cuts basically where someone will pick up the phone and the person on the other line is in a different temporality and you're in that scene already where someone will go down a hallway like Louisa Ray, you know, it's like Halle, Halle Berry is going down the hallway with Hugh Grant in the 1970s. And then it cuts to a door being opened in the 2000s and Jim Broadman's head like pops through. So I, I really think that the pacing of this film just like fucking rocks. And it totally is a it is a deep disruption of how the novels is put together. This I think is is the least successful um, choice in adaptation that. This is the least successful. The yes, not the yellow uh, face. Oh, okay, number two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this um, I I really 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 hate the editing in this movie. I really hate what this this idea. I hate the match cutting because I think what is crucial to this novel and is kind of crucial to the idea behind this novel is uh, what we've mentioned before is pastiche of sort of spending time and developing the voice of of these um uh of these stories which are connected but are also completely distinct from each other and have nothing in common except for this vague overarching story that does not come clear until 200 pages in um, so to abandon that structure and to not spend more than four or five minutes at a time in any specific story and often no more than 15 seconds, um, because eventually, especially towards the back half of this film, it almost becomes sort of montage yeah, of just, totally. um, that it, I find it not disorienting. Cause I've, I mean, at this point I've read this novel twice. I've seen this movie twice. I know these stories, but just sort of just alienating. And I think this is a deeply humanist work and in theory, a deeply humanist film. And it does not give you time or space to, um, to connect to, to anything. And I, and I, I don't know, we can talk about this, the sort of the stories individually later on, but I mean, I think there are other baffling, baffling, baffling choices that to make these stories bleed together instead of have them be distinct from one another, I think is just a fundamentally compromised decision that just 
uh, just falls on its flat on its face. And I really hate it, but yeah, I have to agree with Caleb. I think for all the same reasons, like, I think what makes, what makes the book so poignant is this like sense of momentum building through each story, like societally, like you just feel you've thought about the individual struggles of these people. You think about how they connect to the time that they're in. And then you see this kind of accumulation almost of chaos and like oppression keep building and building until it all just blows up. Um, and then, and, and, and you feel it like you really, I mean, it's like kind of heartbreaking once you get to the middle section of the book and you've seen that, like the world's gone to shit and people are back to, you know, sort of like pre-industrial, like, you know, people worrying about people riding by on horses and chopping their heads off. Like, and it's just like a heartbreaking transition that you've really methodically taken each step in. And so, yeah, I, I agree with Caleb, like the, the choice to abandon that doesn't leave you with a lot to latch onto. And then I think that paired with the, the movie has a slightly more, like the book is kind of funny at times, especially in the more like in the sections that align most closely with our, our actual time period, there's like mm. a comic side to it, but because it doesn't deeply invest in those characters and that world building, you're almost only left with like these kind of winking comic gestures and the sort of outrageous makeup choices that happen. Or just like, <laughs> it's like you kind of are latching on to more like gesture and jokes and like kind of more superficial stuff than the more thematic. It like tries to be more universalist by like fusing all these stories and blending them all together. But I actually think it does quite the opposite because it doesn't even give you enough to invest in to see connections between the stories and understand that they are related to each other. An unfortunate so, choice. I am less enamored in this with this novel than either of you are, to be honest. I I, I don't love this. There book. he finally says yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm really I am really like not precious about the source text. And I think if the movie were to keep the six steps forward, six steps back depiction. I actually don't think Mitchell's writing on its own can hold itself for like 20 minutes of film directly. I think it basically needs to get broken up in this way to keep it invigorating. Well, it needs um, to be a 12 episode show. I know, but like, this is the problem with every fucking adaptation is like, the answer is always like, well, the best way to film a novel is just to make it into a miniseries or whatever. And that's like more and more what's happening. But like, that's very that is a very cowardly form of adaptation to me and it's a and it is a question of like how do you pick what essence to pull from in this novel and there is a certain like problem of the Wachowskis and I guess Tom Tickford is the other voice we should maybe acknowledge here who directed kind of two or three of these segments them holding your hand and kind of telling you with the casting who is which reincarnation of which person and kind of how you're supposed to feel through the whole thing. And it's certainly not an ambiguous film, but I don't know if the novel itself is super ambiguous in some sections. I think, I don't think, um, I, I, David Mitchell is not a good sci-fi writer. I'm sorry. Like, I think the Somni portion is like a kind of a fucking slog and I really do not dig. It's my least favorite part of the book. And I think it gets like a ton of juice by having the Wachowskis just kind of take the reins and like have, Again, like, the yellow face really is, like, sucks and is evil and bad. But the the general design choices of the art direction in that world, I think, really kind of juice up what David Mitchell is putting oh, I feel the exact opposite to you. 
Is this your favorite part of the book? Is the Somni, would you say? Um, it, one of them, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. Or to me, it has my favorite um, moment of the book. Like, there's a moment in the book. So Sanmi is like a robotic. She's like a human kind of clone who in this dystopian world it works in a cafe. And so she sort of like has been bred to be like a perfect service employee yeah. and nothing more, um, you know, kind of just like she might as well be like a like a ticket machine in a parking garage, but she's also alive. Yeah. And she slowly starts to realize her own, you know, she slowly starts to kind of gain human consciousness. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and realize that like she's part of this class of people. She kind of gains class consciousness. Like she realizes totally. she's being yeah, yeah, bred yeah. for servitude. Um, and there's a moment in the book where like, she's kind of having this realization. She's connected with this sort of rebellious faction and she sees a fly for the first time, just like a bug flying around. And she's just kind of so confused and sort of fascinated by just seeing a bug. And like, she doesn't, you as a reader know it's a fly, but she doesn't know what it is. It's like, she just thinks it's some sort of gizmo or something. And to me, I don't know, just that image of someone not even being able someone being so disconnected from their own humanity that they couldn't even recognize an insect for what it was. Just felt, it just is a tragic moment sure. to me. And I felt like, unfortunately, the Wachowskis added so much like adrenaline and like cool shit yeah. to the, the Sony section that I think you miss out on the like commentary being made about how it's like, it's tragic not to have an understanding of yourself. But then once you do understand yourself, it's like a different kind of tragedy because then you just... I don't know. Then you're starting to have to sure, bear the sure, way to the sure. world. Um, so I don't know. But again, like, as you're saying in an adaptation, you have to decide what what essence of the story you're choosing. Like, it, it can't be the same book or it can't be the same work. Otherwise, you'll end up like, I think it's that Borges story where, like, the cartographers are trying to make a map of the world that's the same size of the world. And then, like, <laughs> you know, it's like you, you can't, you can't yeah. like, you have to, <laughs> you have to make it smaller. So yeah i could see why they chose to spice it up but i part of me also yearns for people to experience that section for those reasons okay yeah yeah, yeah. i i i think that is i want to talk about the adrenaline stuff and i'm actually going to backtrack and i'm going to say so this 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 film is is split in six but it's also kind of split into the wachowskis directed three of these narratives they've directed the uh sort of the moby dick uh, ship and then the two sort of dystopian future narratives and then Tom Twyler is that his name? Tom Tickfer. Tom Tickfer um, directed sort of the contemporary middle three and I actually think um, when we talk about uh, pastiche and sort of the way that uh, in the source text David Mitchell sort of blends and disguises and repurposes his own voice um, I do think the Wachowskis in their sections are playing around with their own visual language. Sort of in in sort of that boat section, it feels very feels very uh, Amistad, very sort of nineteen eighties yeah. boat movie, sweaty guys, cramped interiors. It does not feel particularly like a Wachowski movie in that Somni section. It's very blue and purple, and it feels um very much like the matrix there are these big action set pieces it feels like a wachowski sci-fi action film and then in that last section they again change the color palette to lots of greens and grays um uh still with a little bit of blue 
um, and 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 change up sort of their action choreography. So I do think they are they are making that adaptation choice to sort of play around with their visual tool set much in the way that David Mitchell is using his literary tool set. But um, these contemporary sections, I think, are really, really, really dreadful um, pieces of filmmaking and completely abandon that. I think especially this, this um, the Halle Berry-led Louisa Ray sort of airport. I think it's the section. weakest part. It's the weakest part of the film for me. The, the biggest misopportunity of the film is that this should be a pastiche of one of my favorite genres of film ever, which is the 70s paranoia thriller. Um, uh, and should they be shooting it on like different cameras or something almost? Like it should it go that big and just like, like certain parts yeah. should be shot on digital surveys on film or whatever, yeah. Play around with formats, play around with aspect ratios, play around with the form of film in the same way that Mitchell does. But the fact that a paranoia thriller is shot in the same aspect ratio with the same uh, color scheme as the next section, which is a domestic farce, is a farce itself. It is um, a, a baffling lack of creativity and engagement with, with the nature of film and with storytelling, and uh, which is, I think, kind of the heart of this, of this novel, is the way that stories are transmitted and the power that that form has. Yeah, I don't know. Can I ask you guys a question? Yeah. yeah. Um, what, so I think this is, I think kind of the two most fundamental uh, adaptation choices that were made in this movie was one, how they were going to handle the narrative structure. You know, is it going to be this nesting doll or is it going to be more of a, you know, call it a, a woven <laughs> object instead? And I think the other one is, you know, in the book, it is implied, though it is not necessarily definitive that these people each story is a reincarnation yeah, yeah, yeah. of some of the previous people and in the movie they make that a lot more literal where it's the same actors in different stories in different timelines and just with you know impressive but also kind of somewhat obvious and slightly distracting you might say amounts of makeup and prosthetics to show that they're different people but they're actually the same people sure what did you make of that say- decision rather than you know make it just different actors it should be said, I think much of the financing was secured by with, with the enthusiastic participation of Tom Hanks. This is a film that I don't think gets made without star power. Um, yeah, it's hugely also, stacked cast. Yes, but I, I think it is, I think it's not just distracting, it's, it's sort of um, visually grotesque. I mean, we, we, there's the yellow face, which I think is, is clearly the most well-intentioned but uh, deeply misinformed very obama era because it's sort of like you have (laughs) you know you have actors of color like duna bay who's korean i believe or korean american playing white people you have halle berry playing like a i think she might be swiss or something woman you know so it's sort of like oh everyone's body jumping but it's sort of like that would be maybe acceptable in a perfectly flat society where all the different shares of the world have been equal in terms of the representation but it's like we're not in that world so yeah I, I i found it somewhat grotesque too and i feel like it kind of weirdly i think that would have worked on stage quite well like i have seen especially 
you know, not to be a guy on a podcast here, but I've seen in improv shows, you can really <laughs> get away with a lot in live theater when it comes to body jumping. You can be playing multiple characters at once. You can have different people play the same character. People just go with it because there's something about being a body in a room that people just kind of get it. But when you see it on screen, it sort of feels like being at a dance party when the lights come on and you're like, oh, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> no, it's like this is somehow the like the spell gets broken a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, and I feel like especially like like, for example, they have Hugh Grant play kind of like a miserly old rich English guy who like won't help out his brother. Oh, I love him. I love I love how he looks with the fuck. He oh. looks like fucking Roger Daltrey. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> it, like, it is funny. That's the thing. But it to me, it comes out. It feels like weirdly like nutty professor or like. Sure. There's just this strange kind of like I'm used to seeing that sort of look in like nutty professor or like dodgeball with the you know whatever the romanian dodgeball team they all yeah yeah yeah. crazy big noses or something like it just i don't know i think i like the makeup more than either of you i i've all i mean the yellow face is extremely upsetting and when duna bay is playing the mexican woman at the end of the louisa ray story is like also is is quite bad yeah Halle Berry's spanish wasn't bad i would say i was pleasantly surprised the one that does it pretty well, I think, is the um, the in Hawaii in the post apocalyptic world. There's sort of a weird like. There's a very like there's a there's a dynamic there in which it is like the sort of performed indigeneity. I think of like Susan Sarandon or whatever is like the shaman, but that one because it's just pure makeup and not prosthetics, I think lands the best of them all. Josh, you made a good point when you were talking about live theater and Tom Hanks in one of the interviews I was looking at, he described making this movie as like doing three seasons of repertory theater in the space of two months. Um, but he also, I have an audio drop of just Tom Hanks describing like what what the audio does for him. Or not the audio, sorry. what the Tom Hanks describing what the makeup does for him as as like trying to put these performances together of these multiple lifetimes. The way it impacts the work that we did as an actor, it is, is it instantaneously, I found, put us in a direction for the voices. Who's your daddy? For the physicality of it. You cannot dress up as Dr. Henry Goose and not talk like Henry Goose and sound like him. There's something about the way a, each layer of the character is put on and it, it's about a four hour process. <laughs> You know, I forgot that this stuff has been applied to me. It feels so natural. After a while, I just... For myself, I could look in the mirror and already be well down the road to finding, you know, what the master gestures are going to be, all the little tricks of the trade. So I, that audio is... It's pulled from, like, a behind-the-scenes featurette, so it's it's splicing in audio from a couple different, like, points, which is why it's sort of, like, wobbly there. And I don't, it does not answer the fundamental question of why should you have actors play multiple roles, but I do think there's something there for, in a film that is trying to simulate so many different genres, just as David Mitchell's writing has to, like, ape these different forms and genres, there's something to be said for, like, what are the artificial components you have to incorporate into a film to, like, if you are going to make a film that is in the 1800s and a film that's in the 21st century what are the what is what is the post-production or what not the post-production but like what is the artificial components you have to have to bring your performers into those spaces in each of them 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I see why they did it. I think, I think that to me strikes me as actually a much harder choice than the nested versus blended because one of the great advantages of writing a book is that you leave in the imagination. The audience does a lot of the imaginative work. You just say what's happening and they decide how it looks, but a movie you're doing both the saying and the visual representation. And so like, you have to make a, a hard choice there. I don't know. I mean, didn't it get nominated for an Oscar or did it? It gets nominated for no Oscars. It is, it, it gets snubbed for everything. It does get some Golden Globe nominations. Well, I should say the, the makeup at the time was at least received like as an achievement, right? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely like pieces you will find from like Asian American writers in specific who are really taking an issue with like super rightfully with the Neo Soul portion. I mean, I think my least part of, of the Mitchell novel are sort of the allusions to to maybe reincarnation i feel like that actually that spiritual element kind of undercuts the humanism of the work because i think this work is not so much about rebirth and reincarnation and sort of the same people being connected to each other in a closed loop and i think is more moving to me as the idea of just sort of these completely disconnected and unconnectable experiences just through sort of the singular connection of just being alive um, is all that's needed. And so having, so I think committing to that aspect of the novel, which I think is the weakest part of the novel, I also just think doesn't speak well to the, to the film because it's, I, I mean, it's something, it's something I'm not interested in the source text. And so the fact that it is doubled and tripled down in the adaptation, I find is just like a deep eye roll for me. So I want, I want to make the argument that both of these decisions that you have troubles with in the novel, I'm not defending the decisions in and of themselves, but they are not done out of convenience that they are both like, if you go into the production process of it. So a big reason why Tom Tickford is brought in as the second director or the third director is because it is basically untenable for them to run the shooting in four different countries with with just the two of them. Like, I think they have a very genuine collaboration with Tickfer in this movie. I don't think he's just like, he's not just like a, a, a what's the term? Not a workhorse, but what's the... Uh, second unit. Yeah, like he's not just like a second unit guy. Like he gets control over what he's putting on, which is to their detriment because I think he's a worse director than the Wachowskis. So the so on the idea of having the the movie stars in multiple locations, it's probably more work in the long run to have to fly Tom Hanks around to like all these different countries for the shooting. And like you see it with like direct-to-video action movies is like they'll have Seagal really prominently featured in the marketing and financing of a movie, and he'll be in one scene of it you know like that's and that may that trick might be a little harder to pull off if you're trying to make a a blockbuster hit like this but you still can like because there are big names that they don't have in every single sequence of it so again that's that and then the um the decision to split it up into the different storylines is it's very cool to watch photographs or videos and there's actually a really good new yorker article about the Wachowskis and Tom Tickford basically in isolation at a cabin tree trying to figure out how to write this film together. And they're just like cooking barbecue and what they, and just like talking every day about how to work it. And they basically make note cards of every scene 
that they wanted both from the book into the movie and are just like moving them around on the floor and like plotting them out. And so like, it's, it's why I think the match cuts work for me is because there is such an intentional design to that flow of the film. And because it's not arbitrary. No. And when it, and when it, and when it is building tension around, because I do think each of the, in the Mitchell's in the source text, there are these kind of recurring themes of like imprisonment or escape or kind of like discovery and epiphany and watching the film being able to like compress these points together like an accordion and just have them just like fucking explode at the same time and realize that if you're invested in this movie as I was, you are getting tension from like multiple temporalities at the same time just kind of coalescing on you. That is what really impresses me the most. But I would say the middle, maybe the, if you split the movie up into quarters, I would say the second quarter of the movie was perhaps my favorite part that like, if you were doing like a traditional like plot diagram that might, you might call like the rising action section where you start to see like they've finished the exposition and then it just gets this feeling of it starts like rolling along a little bit more. And I appreciated the cross cutting there the most because it's sort of like you felt all of, it's like rather than it being like, two cars heading for a narrative car accident in the big moment. It was like six cars and you're like, wow, okay, it's building. So that was fun. But I just think like the three hour runtime makes it really hard to sustain that feeling. And then it just starts to feel a bit like watching, you know, just like watching a movie that's being paused and unpaused and or like channel surfing almost. Sure. Unfortunately, as the, as it, as it continues, like that's a hard trick to me to sustain for three hours. (laughs) and six stories like it but again it's just like it is an amazingly ambitious thing they're trying to do like again i just kind of can't believe that they thought they could do it (laughs) yeah oh what do you think Caleb? is this the most ambitious adaptation attempt we've covered on the pod it's this a tristram shandy for For me yeah i was about to say tristram shandy i think i mean tristram shandy i think is a novel about sort of the failure of of artists to like actually capture life that is a, a a story about nothing. And this is a story that is six stories that is about the concept of stories. And uh, I think, you know, I think this is truly universal in scale and like really cannot just, I think film is my favorite form of art, but it's just like fundamentally too confined um, and too defined by confinement um, to like pull something off. So you think it's unadaptable, essentially. In this form. I think, I and I think there are, or, or at least in the form that, I think there are cuts they could have made, and I think there are ways that they can play around with either cutting stories or re- rewriting stories to, to reshape this story to be about film rather than literature, which, mm. I mean, mm-hmm. that I think that, that they could have made and, and, and they chose not to make. Um, yeah. But I think if you're going to do a story about, you know, the 800 years of of Western literary canon in a three-hour film, I don't know if that is more than uh, half of which is just David Mitchell's imagination of what that canon yes. will be. To, <laughs> yeah. to be fair, yeah, it's. I think it's like it's it's a top sell. Um, you're making me want to see a movie that is like about. Here's the here's the arc. It is about an up and coming filmmaker who comes out of like the Roger Corman B roll kind of or like B studio approach and is able to make his own kind of groundbreaking seventies stuff. 
and then a young Tarantino sees it in his video store as he's working, and then some like dipshit TikTok zoomer sees like I love Fight Club or whatever. <laughs> Honestly, but like yeah, like, yeah, I, think I actually that think that'd be more, I just, yeah because you could totally pull that off visually. Like this is just such a bookie book for uh, an inelegant way to say something about a very elegantly said book. Like it is just so a book to me. <laughs> <laughs> In a way, like sometimes you read a book, like you know, it's like um, like uh, what's who's the um, the Da Vinci Code guy? Dan Brown. Dan Brown writes movies. He doesn't write books. <laughs> like, like they're not and he, good. And he doesn't yeah. write particularly good movies either. No, no, but like they're not like they don't have to be books to say what they're trying to say sure yeah yeah um are there any performances you guys really like i think the actors who have to do the least yellow face generally come across the best in this film yeah the law of like yellow face returns well fucking well who do you remember who tom hanks plays in the neo soul portion um he's like hardly in it right he plays Jim Broadbent's character in the movie of oh, Jim Broadbent. Right, like right. he just plays he, he, a he, different he, white he, guy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He really yes. gets away scot-free. Uh-huh. Um, he is good in the whole movie though. Like he's fucking he's pretty nasty as the doctor in um, in the Adam Ewing journal. Like it makes me want to see more villainous Tom Hanks, and I don't know if we'll get that. Yeah, and I love when they take an all-American slice of white bread and make him evil. Like I love when Matt Damon's yeah. a villain as well because it's like you're like yeah you little fucking creep like yeah. of course that's why you seem so normal because you're evil <laughs> like, it is the when i saw this movie having not read the book it is truly so shocking when he throws the critic off the rooftop um <laughs> oh, yeah. like, that section is almost where i'm like it's so ridiculous i'm just like okay i'll just enjoy this yeah tom hanks is like a london gangster is sick i think david mitchell <laughs> plays the bartender in that scene Oh, really? oh yes i knew he had a cameo i forgot <laughs> i believe that's him because you see a scared looking bartender that looks a lot like david mitchell and is a slightly worse actor than all the other extras on screen <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what if david what if david mitchell had insisted on like a prominent yellow face role in this film it's like i taught in tokyo it's fine i could do it <laughs> My wife is Japanese, wife is Japanese. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, still doesn't still not allowed. Yeah. What do you guys think of Halle Berry? Because I thought I think like I've always found her both like she can be very effective, but there's always a slight not quite prestige quality about her to me, <laughs> like her acting. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like she's good, but I think she's good in the film. Uh, no, I mean, I think she is good in the film. I mean, her two. I even have an audio drop of her describing the progression of her characters and like, I don't think I'll play it, but like she goes into this for her. I think she, I think she articulates the idea and is on the same wavelength of the Wachowskis about this film is that the performance and for the actors, the lifetime, what you are performing in this movie is a soul that is existing across these six lifetimes. And she really does talk about this trajectory of her character and how like, Playing Vivian Ayres's wife informs who, like, Meredith. I was nervous about playing a different race film, like, and whether that would person. be acceptable or not. I think she keeps it together. But that nervousness was once overridden with the Louise Ray mystery you know, really is, and the challenge of, of being able to do it. But then I realized that in the world that we had created, it was perfectly acceptable. Is Keith David, he's like the security guy? Yeah. 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 I thought he did it all. I thought he did pretty well. 
I honestly thought Hugo Weaving maybe had the best throughout, just because I think he For was sure. re- like on one hand he was just playing a lot of consistent like just Hugo Weaving esque characters. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, there was not a lot of like stretching involved. But I honestly like so like in the Hawaii apocalypse section, he basically just plays the devil. But mm-hmm. it's kind of like more of a voodoo seeming devil than exactly like a Christian one. Like he has like sort of this top hat and this kind of, I don't know, like more swagger than you would imagine like the Christian devil would have, I guess. <laughs> um, and I think it it kind of nails the like. The book has turned the kaleidoscope so many times that now you're just in this reality where like past, present, future are all mixed up and like you know, Halle Berry is playing this future woman with all the space age technology. And Tom Hanks is like, for lack of a better word, sort of this like caveman like figure. And then Hugo Weaving is this like voodoo devil who's literally whispering in his ear. And like, it's just this kind of that. Yeah. I thought he, I thought he was a great casting choice. I can see why the Wachowskis like love working with him. Yeah. Um, just cause he's got like, he, I feel like honestly, there's a certain like, um, comic bookiness about him as an actor like and just the way he looks like he has a very Mm -hmm. kind of like almost stylized looking face for sure voice and like yeah you know i talk like this like most people don't (laughs) talk like that but like (laughs) comic book people anime people you kind of think about them having more like (laughs) that so he was kind of a perfect choice i i wasn't as taken with tom hanks though i also think like especially the hawaii section is a like seems incredibly hard to act without it coming off as like some sort of weird, almost like minstrelsy because the voice is frankly like it's, it's a pigeon language and it feels at least descended from kind of African-American vernacular English and, or kind of Caribbean sure Creole kind of talking. Yeah. And so to then be Tom Hanks and doing that, like, I don't think, I don't think the source text, I don't think it's like racist or anything. I'm more just saying that's just a choice that they've made that the language has like moved into this territory. And I think it's hard to convey it without it being cartoony. And I don't think he makes it cartoony, but I just also don't think it like ever felt like fully like seamless communication. Like I was kind of hearing him say these strange things, but I wasn't just like in the scene with him sometimes. Yeah. But that's again, Which that's is, just because like I think only like honestly a classically trained, very high level actor could do a, a great job at that. Like I would watch like Emma Thompson could could play that character. You know? <laughs> that is funny because those are that sequence is is the sequence where characters are granted the most interiority. Yeah. They I mean, and I I wonder if it is because they are speaking sort of uh, pigeon English that they are <laughs> given time to like fully explain their yeah. thoughts and reasons. How, how, how you mean? Wait, which characters are given more interior? Well, uh, specifically Tom thoughts in his inter- in his interactions with old Georgie, who is revealed to be like purely a product of his own. Sure. Uh, in sort of in in the novel, it's this is a a supernatural-ish being that he it seems to be like a, a, a belief in in sort of like the devil of the community. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But in the film, it is sort of a devil of his own making that whispers only to him and interacts only with him. And in sort of these sequences where Georgie is sort of, um, is is the id. He is sort of explaining sort of the base and fearful uh, 
and 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 crueler nature of of Tom Hanks. And so in that way, he and and because they give time and space to those sequences, there actually is a sense of character rather than archetype um, in that. That I I don't know. I connect most strongly because that does feel like the most complicated and human portrayal yeah. of a person in the film. And I think frankly, it's to my mind, probably the best section of the book too. I think it's like where the formal, the formal audacity, it, like he goes so hard at, he like invents a new dialect basically and like kind of does it successfully. And I think tells a pretty plausible post-apocalypse story where it's like not, you know, you're not in like empty Times Square with like a, a deer walking through. You're just like, yeah, like people on islands were able to ride it out and like have their own kind of insular cultures, but like globally speaking, things are not so great. And, you know, they just kind of like turn in words and yeah, just sort of, and like, that just feels very plausible. It's a great section of the book. And I think I was honestly, I was most worried about that section in the movie. Cause I'm just like, it could really easily feel sort of like, like, you know how in like, um, like Rushmore, the kid is like putting on these kind of like crazy Fantasia plays where it's like, you know, platoon or something and people are coming out on like visual lines. And it's like just this like post, post, post ironic, whatever, like you could imagine post-apocalyptic tribal sci-fi Hawaii spiritual crisis could feel that way, but they kind of just do it. And honestly, I liked um, (laughs) like, uh hugh grant as like a cannibal warrior like <laughs> oh totally that felt like cheeky yeah. but in a good way because uh-huh. you've seen him go from like sleazy nuclear power plant owner and like sleazy english rich guy to like <laughs> just like a full like warrior <laughs> chieftain with a skull painted on his face <laughs> i um i like the Caleb, I disagree with you about that it's the most interiority in the Hawaii section. I think Frobisher is, I think that's a lot of interiority, I think, of that guy and that's kind of narration. And it's, uh, I really like that sequence of the, of like the Vivian airs and like working on the music. I think it's a great, Broadbent is really good in the film. I think throughout, like, I think he plays his his trajectory of kind of like smug asshole that sort of gets his cake at the end in the in the 21st century like that all works really well for me the music is fantastic in this film it's pretty damn hard fucking be i mean oh i know no i mean this whole movie being like i am working on the greatest piece of art ever it has to live up to it and i think it really does it's tom tickford who does the music which is sort of fascinating wow he has like two other people with him but like He's scored other movies. Like, I think he is a genuine musician. It's not. And he also did the score for the Matrix Resurrections. So, like. And I believe Sensate as well. He's a regular yeah. collaborator. Yeah. Interesting. That's like not a, a multi hyphenate you see very often. For sure. Now I'm thinking of trying to think of others and I'm like drawing a blank. But I bet there's some like absolute weirdos out there that like do do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I bet Werner Herzog fucks around with the synthesizer. Sure. <laughs> oh, uh, John Carpenter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the yeah, duh. Yeah. R- Rob Zombie. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be it. So one of the things in the like when I was looking at kind of pressers and interviews about this, I sometimes the adaptations that we look at on this podcast, there's a very clear divorce between 
like actors are told just read the screenplay don't look at the book like sometimes actors are really told not to interact with the source text at all it seems like almost everyone in this movie read the book or something like there is a deep if not like loyalty to the actual source text in the way that this movie is put together there is an absolute reverence of it that is kind of is is very interesting to see and i think the very valid re- that the valid claims by you that this is a misinterpretation of the book but the ways that like the group really does not feel that way you know like just to compare it to a most wanted man that we did last with you josh like the interviews with um what the fuck is that director's name it's like benoit ben shit or something i'm not gonna remember this guy's name he's dutch who cares anton corbin the interviews with anton corbin are all just like well you know adapting's hard and you really have to cut parts of the book and people are always gonna be mad like he's already like hedging his bets or or like he has this like pre-defense about that he's had to change the book but i don't know like this 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 book was very much like a manual i think to everyone participating in this movie and i don't know if they all just have there is like a collective misunderstanding, but it keeps it it keeps the film cohesive in a way. Yeah, and I think like honestly, as an actor, I think it's like a very inviting kind of story. Like, I think I would be thrilled to be asked to be in a movie like this. Yeah, because it's just a real like test of test of your capabilities and like also just kind of a validation of them too. About like your job is to kind of jump out of yourself and inhabit other selves and so what if you did that six times in one movie yeah kind of like sweet and like extremely grandiose at the same time (laughs) (laughs) which i think a lot of actors like have that (laughs) like you have to have the ego but you also have to like really care about people to do it well okay so this is this is jim sturgis he plays adam ewing um who the his figure within this is he his arc is an abolitionist basically he's he becomes attracted to the cause of abolition in the 1800s he goes from a racist to yellow face to an abolitionist (laughs) let's call it a hell of a ride dude let's let's fucking let's hear let's hear jim sturgis explain his own take on the on the yellow face in this film i was nervous about playing a different race and whether that would be acceptable or not but that nervousness was overridden with excitement you know and and the challenge of of being able to do it but then i realized that in the world that we had created it was perfectly acceptable wow (laughs) that's the epitaph that of you put on the whole british empire it is perfect that he's british in the world that we created it was perfectly acceptable Um, (laughs) i didn't know he was british but that just somehow is more makes it more on the nose that he used (laughs) Yeah, the arrogance. There is there's definitely like a deep arrogance in this whole project. Uh yeah. So Josh, you're a, a very uh smart and thoughtful guy, but the time has come for you to debase yourself and oh, to get okay. into all of your very serious thoughts and considerations about the Wachowski's 2013 film, yes. Cloud Atlas, which is of course the adaptation of David Mitchell's uh, novel of the same name. Is Cloud Atlas a rad adaptation? Is it a bad adaptation? Does it make you feel sad adaptation? Maybe steaming mad adaptation? Any variation thereof? Josh Marcus, what do you think? 
Um, can I call it a not half bad adaptation? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I call it that because I think I appreciate art that gives it a real go. There's almost nothing worse than watching a piece of entertainment that you know is just hacky from the beginning and knows it's hacky and doesn't care. Like they're just trying to go through the motions, make a competent whatever. You you never remember that sort of thing. Um, and what I appreciate about this movie much like the book is that it is really is really trying to do something distinctive and in the face of great commercial and kind of commercial pressure and intellectual tradition to do something conventional it like tried to do something totally out there and like culture needs that otherwise it's not culture it's just like retail so i appreciate the movie for doing that i don't think it stuck the landing though i honestly kind of can't imagine what sticking the landing looks like so i think it was a, i think it was a great it was a greatly ambitious project that they didn't succeed in completing but i'm glad they tried it and honestly and i think the the way more basic test of a movie and of an adaptation is just like was it worth your time watching it were you entertained did it make you feel something and like certainly i was that's but anyway, yeah, I just always appreciate art that goes for it. Um, and they, to their credit, they totally went for it, but they just like didn't fully succeed. But that's okay. Hell yeah! What about you, Caleb? I'm gonna say that this is a chat adaptation. Um, <laughs> I think this is a film that uh, is a work of deep and profound arrogance. These are people who believed. <laughs> unquestionably that they had the chops and uh, both the technical chops and the the the, the um, philosophical grandeur needed to pull off an adaptation of this. They took an enormous swing, fully confident that they would connect and hit a goddamn dinger. <laughs> and you know, they missed, but I respect it. I think there are clear errors that they made in their process. Um, but I love the confidence and, uh, you know, go get them next time, baby. I mean, will <laughs> they? you, Frank. Do you no, think... they won't. But... <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, do you think they're going to keep making stuff or do you think they're kind of just done? Well, one of them is it's uh, I believe Lily is kind of Lily did not make that's That's purely Lana that's doing Resurrections. So Lily. So Lily is retired. And I think Lana, I think is mostly retired. I think the Matrix was probably her last gasp. I mean, it's it flopped mm -hmm. so hard. I don't know if she's getting another one. Yeah, but I'll be there. I like fucking opening day. I'll be there to see it. I'm sure they'll get. I'm I'm, I'm sure she'll get a, a Netflix check at some point. Yeah, um, if she wants it. Uh, Frank, how about you? So as Sanmi four five one teaches us, truth is singular. Its versions are mistruths. I believe you have both spoken mistruths. So. Allow me to give the singular truth on this film. Uh, I believe that Cloud Atlas 2013 is a rad adaptation. Um, wow. I, I think you're taking a big swing. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you connect. Look, I think this is just like a seamless edited project. I think it is epic that plays like almost no other film you have ever seen. The decision to cover six different temporalities and different genres and the choice to keep a connective tissue of actors and uh, 
the choice to keep a connective tissue of like actors and characters and relationships carrying through with it is absolutely ambitious. It really needs to kind of reach a soaring point of like liberation in the end. And I think it genuinely does being able to structure the moment in which Duna Bay's character in the 2021 timeline has been executed and realizes that like death is a door and she'll maybe see her true love again. And the sharp cut to realizing that that couple has already reunited 200 years earlier, just like sticks the fucking landing for me. It's really, it's tremendous. It's super flawed. There's a lot of it that I don't think is worth defending, but there's enough of it that really just kind of speaks to me. It's a adaptation. I think people should check it out and form their own opinion of it. Don't listen uh, to the sheeple. <laughs> Josh, you're incredibly steady and mediating hand. We're really glad to to have you here. Is there a place that our listeners can be checking out more of you or hear hear or read more of you? Oh, um, well, first off, I just want to thank you guys for having me back and just for doing the show. I really appreciate what you do. It reminds me a lot of like um, that podcast, Know Your Enemy, um, about the conservative movement. It's just, I appreciate a podcast where people really dig in, think about it, do the research. And it's not just like dudes hanging out and talking. Um, so anyway, I loved being here and I just like to hang out with you guys. Um, yeah, people can read my writing at The Independent. Um, but I mainly the stuff, the, the good stuff is what I tweet out. Uh, so I'm at Josh W. Marcus <laughs> on Twitter. Um, but yeah, keep, keep rocking with best adapted podcast. <laughs> that's, that's, that's where the people should go. Josh, thank you. That's very, that's, that's mighty kind. Um, thank you to slow your roll for our theme song. Thank you to Zach Sisk for our artwork. Thank you to you, the listener for tuning in. Oh, oh we, we didn't, we didn't drop the classic dorm room quote from this book, which is, uh, what is an ocean, but a multitude of drops. That line that line is bad, right? Like in book and movie, I think that line is basically bad. Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> yeah. it kind of does. You kind of don't need to say it by the time they say it in the book. It's like the literal last like clause of the book. Oh yeah, no, it's quite the it's quite the note to go out on. Whatever he he earned the shitty conclusion, he the <laughs> and so did we. Tune in next week. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>